your attention this, this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. And I'd like to read verses 21 through 26. So if you have your Bibles, I appreciate you following along with me. And uh, we ask the Lord once again to bless Brother Stephen wherever he may be. I understand he's in New Mexico this morning. Uh, so let's pray on his behalf. I think they're a little behind us by a couple hours, so your prayers will uh, benefit him. You're not too late, in other words. Let's also continue to ask the Lord to bless his word today. Very thankful for uh, our prayer that has been offered and also the words that have been mentioned. Luke eleven twenty one. When a strong man, armed, keepeth his palace... His goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. Verse 24, When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man... He walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. He saith, I will return unto my house whence I came out. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he, and taketh to him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they entered in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. I'd like to talk to you this morning about one stronger than Satan, one stronger than he. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor. Now parable, in which this is, uh, are unique to the Lord Jesus Christ and often express various principles. You can't deny that. What parables do not do is they don't take things that are unrealistic to convey certain truths. A parable literally is something that is laid down alongside a truth to illustrate it many ways. I'm I'm not too too keen on the idea that parables uh, in their detail convey something, nor am I equally thinking that parables teach us to be or go into a particular direction that uh, they're imaginary or that they may uh, be spiritualized in a sense to mean something that is out of this world unrealistic. You remember the Apostle Peter said we have not followed cunningly devised fables. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. A fable is something that is imaginary. So what I'm saying is, when the Lord Jesus Christ presented a parable, it wasn't something that was unrealistic, even in its um, explanation or the words that he used to convey it. They point to certain truths, in other words. He used stories to convey truth and principle. And so a fable is something that is novel or something that is new 
or something that is imaginary or something that is unrealistic. And uh, uh, we don't follow those, nor did the Lord teach them. So if you look, for instance, at the various parables in the Gospels, you can read about accounts that may or may not have actually happened, but yet nevertheless are true to their meaning. Like if you speak about ten virgins, you're speaking about ten virgins. Or if you're speaking about oil in the lamps, you're speaking about something that is conveyed that is absolutely of realistic reality. The ten virgins, five were foolish and five were wise. Five took oil and five didn't. These things were actual and realistic experiences, but overall convey a unique truth. Such is the case here we have before us in this wonderful story that is also mirrored in Matthew chapter 12 and also Mark chapter 3 for your information if you want to go home and read them. And I say that because a lot of times the various writers of the New Testament convey uh, additional layers of truth that we can see more into exactly what's going on. As a matter of fact, I believe Matthew chapter 12 takes this particular account and really colors it and illustrates it even more. But there are certain things in this text that I like and I'll use it for, for that reason. But I say one of the things that parables do present principles. And one of the unique principles in this case, if I may stretch on the outside a little bit and go on the outer edge, is there's a military principle that is conveyed in this passage. I've alerted to some people before and quite frankly it is uh, very unique. It's very simple. It's very simple and that is that a strong man, no matter how strong he is, can be overcome by a stronger than he. That's a very important principle. If you have a military force, you want to make sure your force is stronger than the other guy in order for you to be victorious. That makes sense. Now, to illustrate this, I'll use an experience, not an experience, but one that we all know of and learned of back in 2014 when the, the Yazadis over there in Iraq, northern Iraq, were a group of uh, Muslims, but were not militants, ran away from the chaos that was being created there in Iraq. Some were refugees, some of course lived up in that northern part with the Kurds, but nevertheless, they were... Uh, taken by surprise and vanquished by an enemy. And Al- I believe Al-Baghdadi, whatever his name was, a fierce terrorist Muslim militant. And of course, he, under his direction, killed some 5,000 men, women, and children. It was devastating. Now he was, Baghdadi, was a strong man. And the response in 2014 was limited airstrikes and supplies that were airlifted. In 2019, about a year ago, or almost a year, in October, uh, the military went in to his palace, to his compound, to Baghdadi's compound where he lived. And they destroyed him. They went in. They didn't go in through the front door, if you remember. They had the blast a hole in the wall because they thought the, wall, the door may be booby-trapped. And the U.S. military went in, eventually chasing the leader of this militant group down an empty and dead end where he took his own life with bombs along with the two children, his own two children. Here's the principle. There's a difference in strategies. 
The latter strategy worked because it took the head out. It took the leader out and the people were scattered. That principle will be seen later on in the same chapter used by the Pharisees themselves. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is the stronger than Satan. Here, in this particular parable, when a strong man armed is a picture of Satan, the archenemy of God, the premier leader, the prince of darkness, the God of this world, whose spirit now works in the children of disobedience. When a strong man armed, in other words, Satan is armed. He's got an arsenal of weapons. And he used them to promulgate his kingdom, to reinforce his kingdom, to advance his kingdom of darkness. Now the children of light have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness and into God's spiritual kingdom. Uh, the Lord's people are referred to as children of light, not children of darkness. Paul refers to the Ephesian brethren who were once darkness, but now we have been translated, according to the book of Colossians, or we've been moved out of one plane, literally, and into another, into God's spiritual kingdom of light. By nature, we are no different than the children of disobedience. Because we were all born in sin. We were all born, conceived in sin by our ancestry, if you will, by our roots that go all the way back to Adam. So, we are what we are today by the grace of God. God's grace has appeared unto us. By God's grace, we have been separated, in that sense, from our mother's womb, from the lineage, from the roots by which we have been born, conceived in sin. And now we've been made alive by the grace of Almighty God. And so, what have we that we did not receive? We're not boasting, as our dear brother had mentioned. We don't take praise for what we are right now. It is by grace we are saved, not by our works. Uh, we have nothing to boast of. No merit has accomplished this great task other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. He is the stronger Man, He is the victor. I like that song that we sung, Victory in Jesus. And it mentioned and it alludes to the fact that one day we will sing it. But we were singing it right to now, weren't we? We're going to sing it in heaven, right? The song of victory of the Lamb that was slain for us. But we're singing it right now because grace reaches down in this sin-cursed world. And it draws men and women, elect of God, out of, out of this old world out of the kingdom of darkness and puts us in the kingdom of God's dear Son. That's where we are by grace today. Well, Satan, in the first place, is a strong man. You know, if you go back and look in the very first chapter of Genesis up to the third chapter of Genesis, you'll have to agree that old Satan was stronger than Adam. Now, I know that Eve was deceived through the subtlety of Satan. There's no doubt about it. And she was in the transgression in this sense, that she was deceived and she was a sinner by that sense, in that sense. She transgressed. But Adam was our federal head. And it was Adam who chose voluntarily. It was his offense by which we all were represented in. He voluntarily of a free will. He was a free moral agent. You can't say that about any other man ever born 
of a woman. He was the only free moral agent. Now all of us who are born in sin are captive and prisoners to sin. And we were enslaved under the power of Satan. Satan ruled and reigned over the natural heart. But Adam, the Bible says, now the Bible doesn't say that Adam was innocent. Now some translations may do that. We may often refer to him as innocent. But the Bible does say that he was made upright. Lo, I found this one thing, I think the preacher said back in the book of Ecclesiastes, that God hath made man upright. But they, plural, have sought out many inventions. So Adam was made upright. That is, it means just. It means righteous. Adam was a just, created man. He had righteousness. He was perfect in that sense. And in that sense, he was innocent because he was without guilt. He never broke any law up to that point. He was perfectly innocent. He had a creature righteousness. Now, the limitations, obviously, were that he was not God. He was a creature. And he represented creatures. He was the first man uh, created by God. And from his loins, we came. He was the... He was the federal head of the human race, if you will. And he was given knowledge and, and wisdom. And yet, uh, he was not perfect in the sense that he was like God. Of course, that's one of the benefits that grace has installed for us. That we are no longer blessed in creature righteousness. We have a righteousness which is like an after Christ. Therefore, when we get to heaven, we are sons and daughters, if you will... And we will never be subject to that kind of problem that Adam faced in the garden. We will be like Christ. We'll be joint heirs. We are as him. He is our elder brother, you see. And we would never be susceptible to falling again in the future. But anyway, he fell. And in that sense, Adam was weaker or the less stronger than Satan because it was through his subtlety that he deceived Eve and it was a temptation there that she fell under. And all within earshot and eyesight of Adam, who chose willingly and freely of his own will and offended God. He broke the law of God. He broke that commandment of God. And as a result, he fell. There's other men in the Bible that we can be assured of that they were strong, but they were not perfect. Remember Samson? He was a man who was strong as long as the Spirit of God was with him. And of course, it was, uh, it was pictured through his hair. Um, his strength didn't come from his hair. His strength came from the Spirit of God. But the hair that was untouched was a picture, an emblem of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And of course, under the deceit of a woman mixed with wine, old Samson fell. She cut off his hair and there went his strength. And so even Samson was subject to the powers of darkness. David in the Bible was a man after God's own heart. We saw that he had great victories like slaying Goliath. And yet, of course, we see he became a murderer, if you will. He was unjust in that sense that he did a great and terrible deed against God. And he was found guilty. And you remember Nathan the prophet accused him and said, Thou art the man. And of course, David was humbled and repented of his sin. 
And there was other men in the Bible we, re- we can read about. Solomon was a great man who was very wise. He was wiser than more than any other man in the whole world. Uh, never was a man given wisdom such as Solomon. And as a result, God heard his prayer and blessed him with great riches. The half, the old queen of Sheba said, was never told when she laid eyes on such great wealth that he had. And yet Solomon, in all his wisdom and righteousness and all his riches, fell, being deceived by many of the gods of the nations that surrounded about, that was brought in through the various women that he wedded, various concubines. And so even Solomon, with all his strength, was not stronger than Satan. Now you and I are not stronger than Satan. Now we know that. Uh, We need an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. We need someone who stands in our room instead because we could not face Adam on our own. There's no way we could face Adam. But we're going to learn something later on, I hope, that this particular parable will teach us regarding where our strength lies and the extent of that great strength. Well, if you notice this, when a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. Now that word palace literally means house. And if you read further on, as as our brother read in verse 26, that is a picture of the state of man in his heart. In other words, the strong man armed keepeth his palace. He keeps his houses. He keeps his home. And he has goods and they're in peace. They're in peace. Now, I want to note this, that these goods reference the arsenal and the weapons that Satan uses to advance his kingdom and also to bring a snare upon the elect. I remember about five or six years ago, I preached a sermon on spiritual warfare and I talked about several D words that conveyed the weaponry of Satan, like deceit, destruction, delusion, Despair, despondency, I can't remember them all. But I finally got to the last D word and one of the brother deacons shouted out a good amen. And I guess after hearing all these terrible words that got him down, the last D word kind of lifted him up. Because that last D word was this, is Satan is defeated. He's defeated. When the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he defeated the arch enemy of God. Our enemy, Satan, doomed at the cross. And that old brother shouted with a quiet amen from his pew. A good old deacon at that church at Virginia. And so his goods are those in which he uses to keep men and women blinded. Keep men and women subjugated. Keep men and women in prison. And they work all kinds of evil deeds. Now the Christian is not to render evil for evil, is he or she? No, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal and they're not spiritually on parallel with the uh, weapons of darkness. The Lord teaches the Lord's people a much different path. But His goods are in peace. In other words, they're in agreement with each other. And this is an important point to to draw out, I think, for us. Because we know that oftentimes we hear uh, a misguided explanation of Romans 8.28 because many uh, Bible versions present it that way. 
They present it differently than the old King's English. And a lot of times what you're reading defines basically what you believe concerning a particular passage. And therefore, I give a lot of people some leeway when they quote uh, Romans 8.28 and they apply it for everything under the sun. You know, all things work together for good and they just refer it in a universal way. It's never used that way by the Apostle Paul. And it's certainly not used here. The fact is that the Lord Jesus Christ is never in league with Satan. They're not working together, not collaborating. Evil and good don't work together for our good. You have to understand that text in light of the context. And so to take it out beyond its borders, uh, you can come up with the wrong theology. The fact is the Lord Jesus Christ has never been in league with Satan. Evil is evil and good is good. The two never twain meet. That's the facts. Now, evil things, obviously, are all around us. We have an evil heart of unbelief. The Lord upbraided many times as disciples for being doubtful. Uh, Brother Stephen, in his Wednesday night meeting, used the scriptures, how that Peter walked on water, and it was when he sank or took his eyes off the Lord that he doubted. Why didst thou doubt, he said. It's kind of strange because I was swimming that afternoon before I got to that Zoom meeting. I was in the ocean and the powerful undercurrent was taking me out. I couldn't hardly stand on my two feet, so I just ended up floating. Interesting that old brother Stephen preached on uh, Peter walking on water while I was floating anyway. In other words, I didn't trust myself. I couldn't because that strong current took me out. But I had to get up real quick because it was fast moving me out and beyond the border where I needed to be. But you know, in Jesus' realm, there is never any doubt. When He's in our presence, He removes all doubt. When we fasten our eyes on Him, all doubt flees. See, He's the stronger of the two, if you will. And the Lord Jesus Christ gives us the faith, which is the victory, over those things which will cause us to doubt and be filled with despondency and dismay. These are the tools which Satan uses. These are not the tools in which the Lord Jesus Christ builds, edifies, as we heard already, the Lord's children. He teaches us from the Bible the truth of God's Word. But now notice also that the evil things that not only come from our heart, like doubt and despondency, are all around us. Philosophy of the world. I don't believe that uh, the philosophy of the world is used to enhance the kingdom of God, dear son. I believe it is used to enhance the kingdom of darkness. Philosophies of the world. Like we heard already, Brother Tom share something about Sigmund Freud. You know. His philosophy, of course, was man-centered. It was not centered upon God. I may even quote Sigmund Freud once in a while because sometimes even a man may say something right and true, right? But overall, his philosophy is negative and down and contrary to God. It doesn't mean that what he says... I remember one time I got up in the pulpit and I quoted Charles Spurgeon. I just quoted a man. That's all. He was a preacher that I seemed to read after. And the fellow that followed me castigated me and Spurgeon alike. 
He didn't either know me or he didn't know Spurgeon. Just the fact that I may quote a man doesn't mean that I agree with him wholeheartedly. But this is the error today. We seem to um, uh, favor authors more than the Word of God. Let me quote Spurgeon right now. And you, many of you know I kind of enjoy reading after him. He said he'll take any man's stick and beat the head of the devil with I'll use any author whose words are true and use it for the kingdom's sake. Even though he himself I may disagree with wholeheartedly, like Sigmund Freud. He said a few things that I agree with. I'll share with you them at another time. But anyway, I think it's important to recognize that the devil has his means and methods and God has his. And they're too far apart from one another. And I think it's wrong for us, either as a church or individually as Christians... To try to mingle the two, the two, and expect them to blend in some way. Now, it wasn't long ago I talked to you about some of my favorite songs from the 1970s. You know, secular hymns. And uh, Brother Charles came up to me after service and quickly put his foot down and said, "You know, Brother Steve, it's the 1960s that the songs, the best songs, came out. 1960s. She showed his age a little older than I." Well, I'll give him some credit because there was a song back in 1965 that we all know today, very good, by the old Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones. He sang something to the effect, he, ain't, he can't get no satisfaction. Well, there's a lot of truth in that, isn't it? And I've heard a lot of Christians, how they kind of take certain particular aspects of the secular song and use it in a way which is helpful in Christian evangelism. You see, I disagree with that. And you take a look at that song. I can't get no satisfaction. Think about that for a minute. Old Braze Pascal said, who was a great French philosopher, he said this, there's a God-shaped hole in every human heart. There's a God-shaped hole in every human heart. See, I can't get no satisfaction. There's a lot of truth to that. But it doesn't make it something that we can use as a springboard into some uh, theological clarity in presenting the truth of God. The fact is, the fact is that man is unsatisfied and can never acquire satisfaction in this human body in which he lives because there's a big gaping hole in our hearts. And we seek to fill it in various ways and it never is fully satisfying. In that sense, I'm in agreement with it. But the fact is that the Lord God can only Himself fill that void laid vacant by the human disease called sin. These are the facts. So, I guess the moral of what I'm trying to say is that we do not use the philosophy of the world which, is in, which may mirror some principle and use it as a stepping stone to present some principle of the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. And I think what Brother Robert conveyed very clearly for us that it is the Word of God, it is the teaching of the Word of God whereby saints are equipped into becoming disciples of Christ. Even though we may be attracted. Why? Because we are of the earth earthy. And sometimes that vacancy which is in our heart gravitates toward the secular world that is around us. But the Lord Jesus Christ is calling us to be different. He said, seek those things which are above. You know, set your affection on things which are above. 
above this old world. And as difficult as it may be, as we heard him quote out of Matthew 19.29, as difficult as it may be, it is the truth nevertheless. And the happier we are when we follow the unadulterated, pure simplicity of gospel truth. We're no greater blessed than when we do that. Well, notice also something here in verse 23. He that is not with me is against me. Now that word against is suggesting very highly the opposition that is against the Lord Jesus Christ. He that is not with me is against me. Now it's interesting that in this particular or the words prior to the parable, leading up to this particular parable, which is really significant to understanding the whole thing, people were hearing Jesus gladly. Or they wondered at Him. In Matthew's account, they were amazed and actually said, Is not this the Son of David? But it was the Pharisees who chimed in. Well, He's got the spirit of Beelzebub. He's doing these things by the devil himself. Now you see, it was the Pharisees, it was the leaders who were against the Lord Jesus Christ. They were in opposition to Him. They were following the darkness of the ruler of darkness. But the people, by and large, the common people, the Scripture says, heard Him gladly. What I'm trying to say is that the spirit of the wicked one is always within the midst of the truth of God, trying to muddy the waters, so to speak. And there were always those who will hijack anything, any organization, any protest, if you will, any kind of environment, in order to make it worse as they oppose the truth of God. What we have here is Pharisees that were doing Satan's bidding. Now, obviously, when we read in the Bible about Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee who came to Jesus by night, it's an exception to the rule. We can read about exceptions to the rule, like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who by God's grace were called out. God's grace is not prevented in piercing even the darkness of, God, of, of Satan's kingdom. There's no way. <clears throat> There's proof positive. I mean, he drew you out of many waters, didn't he? Left to your own devices, you wouldn't be sitting here this morning. <clears throat> In the greatest sense, you're no different than Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea. <clears throat> you were the, you're made out of the same material. You wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the grace of God because there's better places to suit your natural man outside this church. But God's caused something different in you. And you fought it for a long time. There's no doubt about it. Speaking of Spurgeon, he was convicted under the Spirit of God for five years. You know, when God's going to use a man or a woman in His kingdom, He's going to drive truth deep into your heart. And you may go through the waters. They may appear to overflow. There's a little girl outside the, the, the gate there. Is somebody... Yeah, somebody's with her. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I saw, I saw Maria at the last second. <laughs> yes, it's by sovereign grace we are who we are. And so Spurgeon for five years was under the conviction of God's Spirit. 
These weren't preparatorial, spiritual guidances outside regeneration. These events that took place prior to his conversion were motions of God's Holy Spirit in convicting him, bringing him down because God would use him immensely. And so in 1857, and I remember that year because I was born a hundred years later, it's not because I know everything about Spurgeon, it's because these certain things trigger. When he, on a wintry day, was prevented from going to his home church, <clears throat> he went down an old street called Artery somewhere in London to preach, excuse me, to visit a primitive Methodist chapel. And by the way, the pastor was prevented in coming that day. And so an old, thin old man, whose name is unknown to this very day, got up there and preached out of Isaiah. And he cried out, Look unto me, and be ye saved. And Spurgeon was looking for something. And that old preacher, in his scrubbly old voice, he wasn't a preacher, pierced his eyes right on Spurgeon. And he said, young man, look unto Jesus. And you know, that day, he received the blessings of the gospel deliverance. He was converted. He felt, finally, after five years of struggling, that his burden laid at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He felt in his heart the atonement that took place at Calvary. He received it. And he felt the remission of sins. He felt that he was liberated from his sin. And he was at peace with God. Even though it took place legally some 1900 years ago, he received it in that little primitive Methodist chapel. What a blessing it is. I don't know where we are along the way of God's grace in our lives. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness. God leads His people. Some through the waters. Some through the flood, right? Some through the fire. But all through the blood. May the Lord bless us as we seek His fulfillment in our lives. And it comes through the wisdom and the knowledge of the gospel as the brother spoke to us this morning of the Son of God. What He did for us. What He accomplished. He's the victor. He's the stronger than He he has given us the victory by the work of himself, but not at the expense. Listen, nevertheless, there are those that are against him. He that is not with me is against me. Speaking of those Pharisees. And then he says, he that gathereth not with me scattereth. And that scripture pertains to the fact that these Pharisees who were against the Lord Jesus Christ did not help in any way, shape, or form in gathering in the sheep but scatter them. Scatter them. As we heard, we could be scattered by the winds of false and many doctrines. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, if you notice something here, He speaks of the heart as being the palace. And I think it's important to note the context. You know, the Lord, what He's doing, He is delivering His people from unclean spirits. It says right here, verse 24, when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man. Now, you know, we often have questions about the efficacious nature of Satan in people. 
Are they possessed today? Is he merely an influence? Well, this scripture answers that. It answers it. It answers it wholeheartedly. And by the way, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the very beginning of this context, it has in verse 14, and he was casting out a devil. The devil, in the Lord's mind, was not something imaginary, unrealistic, nor was he afraid of the devil. And it really, in the literal, uh, I don't know why the King James translators use the word devil, but it's literally demon. There's only one devil and many demons. Satan's name is devil. But anyway, be that as it may, he was casting out a devil. And uh, the scripture informs the Lord's people as we read the gospel narratives that Jesus wasn't took by surprise. And you and I, you know, we, we, we watch the news, the headlines, we're always shocked. Well, I want you to think about the Lord, how he approached the headlines of his day. He was never shocked. Because he understood the ramifications of Satan and his power and his dominance. He understood that there was a history of Satan interfering in the works of God, even being used in the works of God, if you will, or allowed to be used, I should say it that way, in contrast to what I previously said. Because in the life of Job, you remember, Satan was allowed by God the Father to enter or to touch, not his life, but his everything about his life, Job. And what tremendous travesty took place in his life. What tremendous uh, assault took place on his life. You see, we might think that Job was a strong man, but he was subject to a stronger than he, if you will. And one of the things that really caught my eye when I was reading something about Job several weeks ago was the fact that God upbraided him in the height of his travail when he said, Gird up your loins like a man. That's what he was telling Job. He, he was telling Job in the height of his travesty, when he was forsaken by all, was left penniless, he could walk down the street and people, the elders, the, the fathers, the young children alike would literally bow in his presence. But after all the devastation that took place in his life, he was worthless. And they ended up laughing at him. The little kids would laugh at him when he came in through the streets. You see the difference money and materialism and wealth makes in a life? In the eyes of the world, in the eyes of your brethren, you're nothing. But let me remind each and every one of you, in the eyes of God, that's not the case. That which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Riches mean nothing, or the lack of it, in terms of God. In fact, as a matter of fact, we could say this, that he's closer to the poor in heart than he is to those that are... Um, full of themselves. You see the comparison? There's a, there's a fine line. But anyway, I thought that was amazing. In the height of his travesty and difficulty, that God told Job to gird yourself up like a man. Now for those of us who sometimes wonder about Matthew 26 and verse 39 which is a scripture that denotes the Lord in the garden after having crossed Brook Kidron into the Garden of Gethsemane. And they often wonder, did Jesus now reflect, regret at His will, the Father's will? Did somehow He looked at what was ahead of Him and wish another way? That's not the case. And let me ask you this. Is the Lord Jesus Christ any less of a man than Job? 
Is he any less of a man than Paul the Apostle, who in his weakness was made strong? No, the answer to that question is no. The Lord Jesus Christ, when you view Him in the garden, you view Him as God manifest in the flesh, whose word and will are the same, and His oath bound Him to the cross, willingly going to the cross to die for His people. Oh no. What the Lord was praying for was He said, I'm going to pass through this. He didn't use the word impossible. He used the word possible. He used the word power. Since, He said, it is possible. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. What did He mean by that? I'll tell you what He meant. If I can stretch the truth a little bit to convey it. The Lord was to die on the cross and be buried three days. That was sufficient to satisfy the demands of God's righteous law. Because that wasn't no mere mortal that died on the cross. That was God Himself that relinquished Himself of life for our sakes. Somebody says, well, He only died for three days. No. There was a separation between and in the Godhead that had never, since eternity, if you can try to get your mind around that, was separated at the cross. That in and of itself is incomprehensible by us finite creatures. But it was such a degree of depth that the Lord was under tremendous agony. But if the Lord said, if it takes a week, I'll do it for my people's sake. If, it, if, if my death would take a month, I'll do it for my people's sake. That's what he was saying. Not my will, but thy will be done. And if your will demands a year in the grave, I'll do it for their sake because I love them. And if it would, took, if it would need take a million years, the Lord Jesus Christ, because of His love for us, would have done it for you and me. That's love, brethren, that you cannot put your arms around. And so, this text is not, it's not separated from the whole of Scripture. That the Lord Jesus Christ is the strong man. And He defeated Satan. He defeated him at the cross. Now let me share with you just another example of how uh, powerful the influence of Satan was. And I'm going to take you back to the book of Daniel for a minute. In the book of Daniel chapter 10, there's an account by which is, it's very unique in all of Scripture. But it shows us, it shows us how the pre-incarnate Christ was subject, He made Himself subject. You remember now, the Lord Jesus Christ in being born of a virgin, made of a woman, made under the law, He subjected Himself to be a servant. And as a servant, of course, He crossed the book Kidron, which was not a brook, by the way, it was a dry valley with the exception of the blood that ran down its veins from the temple sacrifices, as many as a thousand in a day. But I want to show you that the pre-incarnate Christ was visualized there in the book of Daniel. When he prayed, he was troubled. He was troubled. He saw a vision of the future. 
a vision that would take place not yet many days from hence. I mean, it was a long way off. But Daniel was troubled. He fasted for 21 days. He didn't eat any bread. He didn't drink any wine. He laid himself bare at the altar of God. He was so concerned by what he saw in this vision. Well, the Lord appears to him alongside the riverbank. And he said, I heard your prayer. I heard your prayer. And as a matter of fact, I was dispatched the day you entered that prayer. 21 days prior. But I was delayed. In other words, there was the forces of the prince of the power of Persia. I put that word power. And the prince of the power of darkness, the prince of Persia, withstood the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, for 21 days. He oppressed him, you see. And that was a picture of the power of Satan. Although, the Lord Jesus Christ overcame him with the, with the help of Michael the archangel. Now you can read about all that in Daniel chapter 10. But I'm presenting that to show you just how strong an angelic being Satan was prior to the cross. Because at the cross, he was doomed. And I'll just give you one verse. I could share with you more, but I'll just give you one. Because one verse is sufficient to lay the groundwork as to what happened at the cross. And this is in Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, which is really a neat scripture. You're going to like this one. Because it reinforces everything. You know, the parables of the Gospels are laid clear by the epistles. Now, in Colossians chapter 2, in verse 15, it says this, And having spoiled, you know what that word means, having spoiled principalities and powers, He made, the Lord Jesus Christ made a show of them openly. The whole world knows about the cross of Christ. Some believe it, some don't. Some ridicule it. Some consider it the power of God. Brother Steve, you're always talking about the cross. You know, when the Lord is pleased to drive certain truths deep into your heart, it's going to be hard to get away from them. And the old rugged cross is something special to me. I can say with the Apostle Paul, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Are you crucified with Christ this morning? Listen. He spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing, triumphing over them in it. And he's talking about the cross because the previous verse says it. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Those ordinances would send us to hell. You understand? Those laws given in Mount Sinai would pin us to the cross. If it wasn't for the Lord Jesus Christ, who took himself of our sin in his own body. And the scripture goes on, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. You see, he spoiled the power of Satan at the cross. He cast him out, no longer able to deceive the elect. Now that is conveyed in the parable in Luke chapter 11. When the Lord Jesus Christ delivered those un, that, that uh, dumb person. Dumb, literally, because this unclean spirit made this brother dumb. 
You know, in the, in, in the gospel accounts, there's the spirits that enter into men are named differently. Some are foul spirit. So, and you can just imagine what they may convey. There was a foul spirit. There, uh, a spirit that literally could destroy the flesh of a man and leave him naked, wandering about among the tombstones. And then there's unclean spirits or filthy spirits. You can imagine what they convey in a person's heart. And there's dumb spirits. There's deaf spirits. And you know what they can convey in a person's heart. Because a dumb spirit will prevent a person from speaking out. And a deaf spirit will prevent a person from listening. Only he that is of God heareth God's words. And men under the subjugation of Satan cannot hear. They have a deaf spirit, if you will. Their ears are not open that they could hear the truths of God's Word. They're shut out from these. Now, the question is, as I once earlier made reference to, was whether or not Satan possesses individuals today. Well, surely he does. That's what this whole account in Luke chapter 11 teaches. He enters into a heart of man. And notice what he says. When he, notice verse 24, when the unclean spirit is going out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and finding none. He saith, I will return unto my house. It seems to me that this scripture says that Satan, in regards to the, his people, ungodly people, wicked people, you can read about those that, you know, how this is all manifested is really portrayed in Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 12. Says you're going to know the tree by its fruit. There's evil trees and there's good trees. And it's a picture of God's people, the sheep versus the goats. Now, listen carefully. Satan can do what he wants with the evil trees. He can come and go as he pleases because he owns them outright. He says, I've left it, but I was in dry places. I was seeking rest and found none, so I returned. Unto the same person. Now watch this. Verse 25. When he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Now that's interesting. Here's a heart that Satan owns that's swept and garnished. And it reminds me of reformation of religion. It reminds me of somebody who cleans up their act. Even within the realms of darkness, a person can be on the outside cleaned up, if you will, garnished, um, furniture, suited, that looks pretty. But there's no genuine fruit that abounds to the glory of God. It's just merely an act that's cleaned up. Uh, let you take, for instance, uh, a person who seeks reformation from being an alcoholic or cleans up his act from a from drug overdose or something like that. But nevertheless, uh, he, he, he sweeps and he does good. And I remember this sweeping, you know, when I was a young man working at my uncle's hardware. One of the first lessons I learned. He said, Stephen, you're not sweeping right. And I would go through, you know, a hardware store, Monument in Kenwood. It was an old store, an old building. And I'd sweep. All I'd do is kick up dust. And he said, Steve, keep the broom down to the ground so that you can collect it and then put it in a bag and throw it out. So I learned a great lesson that when you sweep, sometimes you just dust things around. You really 
Listen, what I'm saying is that this heart is not washed. It's not cleansed by the water of the Word. You know, the Holy Spirit, when He enters a person, makes a washing and regeneration, and as I suggested, a washing and conversion through the power of the Word of God. But this is a sweeping. Old Satan, all he does in the hearts of his own people is sweep. The dust just flies around. It appears like it's reformed and good. But what actually is taking place is nothing like regeneration or true conversion. Notice this. He goes back, and what does he do? He brings seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. In other words, all the reformation in a person's life can do him, new, no, can do him ultimately no real spiritual good. It is only by the cleansing power of God Almighty in the heart of a sinner that can make the distinction, that draws the difference. It's only one saved by grace that clarifies that kind of distinction. And we've seen this in many cases. Now, the fact is this heart or this palace or this compound, whatever you want to call it, is owned outright by Satan himself until that cross, the effect of that cross is applied in the heart of the elect. What took place at the cross was a legal, judicial work satisfying the demands of God's holy law. You know, we often hear the ancient theologians talk about redemption accomplished and redemption applied. They drew, they drew the distinction. And um, the Bible does as well. You see, what took place at the cross was redemption accomplished. It's not imaginary, it's not a picture like some fundamentalists like present for the people and then it's up to you what you do with it that determines your ultimate destiny. That's... That's a lie. That's deception. And you remember falsehood or false truth is closely aligned with truth. You remember that. So he uses all the jargon, uses all the words, but his dictionary is different, as old Sonny Piles would say. But uh, getting back to this idea here of the heart and possession and influence. Now Satan can influence us. And I want you to hang on here because what I have to say is very important. I don't want to use time unwisely. But it is important to know that while Satan cannot possess a child of God, and we're going to see that in this text, Satan can influence us. You see, we're no longer held captive by Satan. We're not blinded. The truth has entered our hearts, and the truth has set us free. We are God's free man in Christ. We are His servants. We're slaves now to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? We're prisoners of Christ. Or prisoners of them. And the Lord Jesus Christ has set His people free. He did so through the power of the Holy Spirit. When He entered into the heart. Now, but nevertheless, while a child of God, listen, a child of God now in His heart is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. No longer can Satan enter into that one's heart. Now, in the gospel accounts, we see that Satan does enter into hearts. It's mentioned three times in the gospels concerning Judas, that he entered into Judas. Three times. The day before the preparation, 
the day of the Passover and during the Passover after after the washing of the feet, but before the Lord's Supper. Always remember that. Satan, um, excuse me, Judas wasn't present at the Lord's Supper. But anyway, the point I make is this. That Satan entered into his heart because he owned him. The Lord Jesus Christ said of Judas that he was the son of perdition. That is, he was eternally lost. But in terms of a true born-again child of God, while Satan can no longer possess our heart because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, he can nevertheless influence you under his snares, deceptions, deceit, his beguiling. He can remove you from the simplicity of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, we see an example of this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, it's really important that we make note of this and then we'll move on to our last point and I'll close. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 26. We not only have the, the fact of it, but we also have the remedy of it. And I'm talking about a child of God who's been lost, who is backslidden, who's under the influence and the snare of the devil. The scripture says, and they that may recover themselves are literally awake in the Greek themselves. In other words, they're in darkness. They're blinded by the beguiling work of Satan. They may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. In other words, we can be taken captive. And literally, that means we can be taken alive like a prisoner. And the Lord's people sometimes are taken alive in other words, they're regenerated children of God, but they're taken captive by Satan. They're snared under the, the darkness of this world and the darkness of the devil. And many times, God's children are caught up. They're caught up under the winds of change, as we heard. Change is very relevant to this world. It didn't upset the Lord, didn't surprise the Lord, but it may you. And it may carry you away into the dens of darkness for a while. And I may be talking to somebody who's under the captivity of Satan. Wanting a way out, but don't know how. I've been there. I know what it's like to be influenced by Satan. I've been there and I saw the, the dredges of this old heart. He'll bring them up. He'll work you over. And he'll leave you for dead. And I think many of you know people. Good people. God's people. Whose lives have been destroyed by Satan. Under the influence of Satan. Promising a better life. Richer rewards. All the glitter this world has to offer. I'll quote Spurgeon again on this one. He called Satan the dunghill deity. What I'm trying to tell you, it's all a load of stuff. And don't you forget it. That stuff is glimmering, but there's nothing to it. Its substance is nothing. It's empty. And it'll leave you for dead. God's people have been made wrecked, shipwrecked from all his, his devices. Be not ignorant of his devices. Well, here's the remedy. Here's the remedy if you or someone you know has been taken captive by Satan and his will. Scripture says in verse 25, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Isn't that interesting? There's always opposition, 
even in our own hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can always find a kin or friends or cousins to opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. In meekness, we're to instruct those who oppose themselves. That's what's going on when you're in the snare of the devil. You're in opposition to the Lord God. That's what's, that's what's going on. And he said, if God peradventure, perhaps, it's an old word that mean, just means perhaps, if God perhaps, in other words, if, if God wills, because all repentance is granted to us by God's sovereignty. But that doesn't mean, that's not a disclaimer for you to give up on it, is it? Because if you seek, you shall find. If you knock, it shall be opened unto you. In meekness, instructing those, that tells us as pastors and teachers and those of you who are also instructing others in the ways of God to do it with meekness, with softness. Present the truth in love, with charity. You tell that person that you've been there and you know the dregs of which you can go if you don't stop in your tracks and seek God. Repent of your sin and turn to Him. Notice what he says. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth. It's as simple as that. And we know that even godliness, the acknowledgement of it, is after the truth of God. The truth is after godliness. That's what he says. In other words, when we acknowledge the truth, we're God-like. We're not man-like. And it's a way out of darkness for the child of God. Because, because God gave us His Son in our hearts. Because we have in our hearts the abode. We are the abode of God's dwelling. We are the home of the Holy Spirit of God. And God gives us an avenue out of those influences that can destroy others and leave them dead. Well, let me move on. And I'll move to the last point because it's right in our text. I wish I could share more. But in Luke chapter 11, and I believe it's verse 20, we find this most beautiful verse. Because we want to know just how is, if redemption is accomplished at the cross, how is that redemption that took place at the cross applied in the hearts of His people? How is the mechanism? What is the modus operandi whereby God instills in us? He flushes out. He vacates Satan. And He presents Himself. What is the mechanism? Is it the preacher? No, we already heard. The preacher's words can't do this. If the preacher's words could make alive a dead sinner, then a preacher will stand at the graveside of the resurrection and resurrect dead bodies unto life everlasting. No. The preacher's voice cannot do this. It is only by the Spirit of God that He penetrates the heart of a child, of an elect child of grace, and opens that heart, flushes out the old man, and presents and changes the heart from a stone heart to a fleshy heart. But it's all by the finger of God. Notice what it says, But if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt, remember what I said? Wherever Jesus is, there's no doubt. And I'll tell you what, an awakened soul leaves no doubt. When a true born-again child of God esteems Christ, when He rises to the occasion and He exalts the name of the Lord God, there's no doubt what has took place. There's no doubt when the finger of God strikes the commandment. That's what that conveys, doesn't it? The finger of God reminds us of old Moses 
when God told him to write or take two tablets of stone and then God with his own finger wrote on those tablets of stone. That's a picture of what God does to a sinner when he strikes that sinner down and he commands that sinner to live through his own power and with his own finger writes in his heart the love of God. I'll tell you what, that's what we're talking about here. In Matthew's parallel version, or account in the narrative, it says the Spirit of God. So the finger of God and the Spirit of God are the same. And I pray that God bless you and keep you from the snare and the captivity of Satan and live unto God. Our time is short. Our resources are great. We have the greatest resource, the Spirit of Almighty God. May the Lord bless you this morning.